Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we're fully aware and we know that life is fragile and it's so delicate. Father, we're thankful that Miss Joellen seems to be fine and we just pray, Lord, that they can figure out what the sources of those spells are for her. Most importantly, Lord, help us to realize personally that none of us are here forever. And just the smallest little thing in our life can really derail what we think is just every day. Father, help us to realize that the things that we do in this life and the things that we believe in, the things that we invest in and hold dear, that those things, Lord, are, are far more important than what we sometimes think that they are. Help us to realize, Father, that you've put us in this world to make a difference, to stand up to the brokenness, to the hurt, to stand in a place where you would call us to stand and to lead the world in the direction you would have us to lead them. Father, I just ask that you would be with us this morning as we open up your word, that, Lord, you would just open our hearts up to what it is you have to say to us. Help us, Lord, not to forget that the things that you've told us to do and the ways that you've called us to live are, are uh, not just a plan that you've laid out so that we have some form of religion to follow. But, God, there is a difference between life and death eternally. We thank you for your son. We thank you for what he did for us on the cross. We just pray all these things in his name today. Amen. It's a movie probably some of you have heard before, maybe a book that you've read. It's called The Cinderella Man. And it's actually about a real, a real character. A guy by the name of James or Jay Braddock. And, and James, uh, James started out as a young man and being a professional boxer. And uh, just like it happens to a lot of young guys, he's pumped up and he's into something. And he just loses his passion and his drive for that thing. And ultimately, uh, ultimately James uh, finally just walks away from boxing at a fairly young age after having had a pretty promising career. He just wouldn't take any more fights. He got married, had a little family, and then the Great Depression hit. And in the midst of the Great Depression, he went back to boxing again, not because he wanted to or he enjoyed the sport particularly, but because he needed to provide for the needs of his family. And if you've ever watched The Cinderella Man, or if you read the book, you know that, that he was winning fights, that he was a 10-to-1 odds on, on winning. Um, no one would have believed that this older boxer, heavier and, and, uh, and slower, would be able to outbox men who were younger than he was. But if, if, you, if you watch some of the videos or you listen to people who wrote about it at that time, they said he fought like a man that was possessed. After one of his fights, one of the reporters came up to him and they're like, man, why do you fight like you do? What are you fighting for? And he answered back simply this word, milk. Milk for my children. Truth of the matter was that Jay Bradford was not fighting because he loved the sport. He wasn't fighting because he enjoyed boxing. It wasn't the competition he was after. He simply realized this was the only way that he could provide for the needs of his children. And as this reporter asks this question, as a father in his late 30s, he simply blankly looks at the guy and lets him know, I'm fighting for my kids back home. I'm fighting so that when I go home tonight... I will have money 
to put food on the table. You know a little bit about his fighting in those days. You know that, that during his fights, 10%, he would get a 10% cut whether or not he won or lost in some of the big, big fights. Because that way, in fact, not only that, but he, he had a 10% cut whether or not he won or lost. And if he lost, a 10% cut of every fight that happened after that. That's how badly people wanted to fight this guy. Because he was thinking about providing for the needs of his family. If you have family here today, you know exactly how this guy feels. Now, you might not get into a boxing ring. You might not put on gloves because that's not your skill set. But as a dad, as a mom, you would do whatever it takes to provide for your children. We're, last few weeks, we've been going through a series of lessons that we're calling Battle Ready. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about a couple things that are worth fighting for. People get in fights all the time, but most of the time, they're about the silliest and stupidest things, right? Someone insults somebody, somebody feels slighted, they go to fighting. But, but there are some things in life that are really worth fighting for, some hills that are worth dying on, some things in life that are w- worth our investment pouring into because they matter. And even if there's no good reason for it in this world's eyes... We know that there's a good reason for us to pour ourselves into that. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah, the fourth chapter. In the story of, that we're going to today in Nehemiah 4, it's a very interesting period in the life of the Jewish nation. They have gone into exile, as you might recall. They've come back from exile and been allowed to return to the city of Jerusalem. But when it was destroyed, it was utterly destroyed. The temple was demolished. The city walls were knocked down. The entire city was piled up and burned. And no one had lived there. And so when the exiles or exilees returned 70 years of being in, in Babylon, they return to the city and they kind of clear out the center part of the city. They start building a, a house of worship again, once again to God. But the outside walls of the city, of the, of the city of Jerusalem, are still lying in ruins. And Nehemiah was so motivated about this that, that he allowed God to use him to go back and be the guy to fix that. Now, you should know a couple things about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not an engineer. He wasn't a wall builder by trade. He served in the court. He, he knew really nothing about what he was tasked to do here, except one thing, that it needed to happen. Now, that's a little similar to our situation that we face when we're working with family, right? Because all of us in here today, some of us are parents and some of us are grandparents, so we've been there and done that. Some of us are just parents of little ones right now, and we're looking forward to this. Some of us aren't parents at all, but we're members of a family, and we know, if there's anything that I know about raising a family and working with family, is that you don't know anything about working with or raising a family, right? Everything constantly changes. And you look at this task that's laid out before you. And I always tell this story, but when, when Kelsey was brought into the room and, and, and that night, and I'm holding her because she's screaming, and, and Michelle's, Michelle's trying to get some rest, and I'm holding this little baby. She finally quiets down. I'll never remember that. Somewhere in the middle of the night, I look down and think to myself, God has entrusted me with an eternal being. This little baby, this little bundle of love and joy is eventually going to grow up to be a person who thinks on her own, Lord willing, and acts on her own and makes decisions on her own that will have consequences for her entire life from this point out. Boy, that's a humbling feeling, isn't it? I can't tell you how quickly that time has flown, but, but that day is here for me. 
And if you have little ones underfoot right now, guys, I know sometimes there's a certain thing where you just think, man, I wish they'd grow up, enjoy every moment, because it's gone so quickly. Nehemiah gets to the city, and they begin the job. This is a huge job. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or seen pictures of Jerusalem, we're talking about not just moving small rocks, and obviously those that are there today are mostly rocks that Herod hauled in, to be honest with you. But we're talking about a monumental task of building a stone wall around an entire city. And in the middle of that, we come across the context of the verses that we're going to read today in Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, starting out in verse number 10, 11, and 12 as we begin. It says, meanwhile, back at the ranch, right, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. Looking and they said, look, we're getting tired. We're getting weary. And there's so much rubble, we can't rebuild the wall. I don't know if you've ever had a cleaning project or a construction project or if you've had a house that burns down, you know exactly how difficult this is because the first step is you've got to go and clean everything so you can start rebuilding everything. But when you're rebuilding a city wall, it's kind of like a project that you've got to do simultaneously. You've got to clean out the rubble. At the same time, you've got to build a wall with the rubble that you're cleaning out and figure out which stones are going to fit where. And this was a wall that it took generations to build and armies of people to build that Solomon had built at the height of the Jewish power. And now they're trying to build it back with just a few stragglers amidst a whole pile of mess. And the, the people of Judah said, look, we are exhausted We are tired. Our strength is giving out. There's so much garbage and rubble and trash that we can't even get to the foundation to begin to build. And then if that's not enough, in verse 11, it says, And also our enemies said, before they knew it, or before they know it, or see us, we'll be right there among them. And we'll kill them, and we'll put an end to their work. See, the people who had moved in after the Israelites had been taken off into captivity. They didn't like the fact that they were reestablishing their principal city. They didn't like the fact they were rebuilding the walls and fitting gates because that meant that they would once again begin to exercise control over their nation and they liked things the way they were. They didn't want to see anyone else move in and tell them what to do. And so they said, we'll, we're, we're going to sneak in there and we're going to kill you all. Now, I think this morning we can imagine, even though we've never built a wall out of stone or we weren't exiles returning from an, an exile situation, I think we understand where these people are. There's a huge job, there's a big mess, and there's people that don't want any of it to happen. And we might look at that and we might say, that is a recipe for the impossible. That's a recipe for absolutely broken. We're going to take those three themes this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about them. Because if you're a part of a family here today, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, if you're a grandma, if you're a grandpa, if you're an aunt or you're an uncle, I think we all can identify with each of these three things. We're going to talk a little bit about how they affect us and how Satan uses each of these things to really pull us off the mark. If you're a part of the family and you feel like sometimes that that the devil is tempting and working in your family to discourage and to destroy the good things that you're trying to build into that family, just recognize that he probably is because he's been at that from the very beginning. 
God put Adam into a perfect garden, created for Adam a perfect helper, a perfect wife. They lived in absolute harmony with one another, with God, and with nature around them. And then, then Satan shows up in the midst of that garden, and you guys know the story. He attacked the family from the very beginning, and he's still doing the exact same thing today. And sometimes, sometimes we just get weary. We're like the people of Judah. Our strength is giving out. The Pelico was once uh, one of the most unwanted ships in the world. You, some of you that are older, you might remember this. It was a, it was a cargo ship designed to haul crude materials like iron ore, iron ore or mang- magnesium or just large quantities of powdered goods. And it happened to be in an area on the East Coast at the time when Philadelphia's trash people went on strike. And for months, they, or for at least a good month, they just didn't pick up the trash hardly at all in the city of Philadelphia. So you can imagine, I mean, you know how much trash builds up at your house in a given week. Imagine if someone didn't come pick it up for a month, and then imagine those businesses and factories and industries that are producing trash that has to be picked up maybe once or twice a day. And you can imagine the stinky, filthy mess that the city of brotherly love became. And so the solution to that was that they, they began to incinerate all this trash, and they put all the ash and remains from that trash onto the ship that was known as the Pelico. And, and, and the Pelico then set sail to try to get rid of this garbage. But before they made it to the port where they were going to unload this trash, they were refused. In fact, for the next decade or so, this ship would pass from place to place, from port to port. They would only be allowed into the port long enough to fuel up, to take on provisions before they were sent back out to sea again to continue a voyage that looked like it had no end. There was not a port or a country or a place in the world that wanted that trash because in that were some highly hazardous chemicals and other things, and it, was, it became a huge problem. The ship was purchased. The name was changed two or three times, owned by different companies, but no matter what, it was still full of garbage. You know, I think some of us sometimes can kind of identify with that poor old ship. Things happened... <laughs> Life worked out in a way that we didn't want it to. We know what it's like to feel aimless, to feel exhausted, to feel weary under a heavy burden that we maybe didn't even put on our own decks. And yet we have to deal with that. Weary is different than sleepy. You can fix sleepy by going to bed. But weariness is a heaviness of spirit. Weariness dictates how we feel. Weariness means that we can't really relax ever fully. Weariness means that we're not able to be at home who we really want to be. We don't have that joy and that happiness we once had because we have this weariness. In reality, in the spiritual world, guys, what's happened there is that we've lost our peace because of things that we brought into our own lives or maybe things that other people brought there. Maybe it's no one's fault at all, but it's just that life happens and those, those responsibilities became heavy burdens on our shoulders. And it seems that they suck every moment of joy away from us. If you feel like that this morning, I want to read a passage of Scripture that will not come as a shock to any of you, but it's a passage of Scripture that we need to remember. Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 28, 29, and 30. It's Jesus here, of course, and Jesus says this, Come to me, 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For a long time in life, I didn't quite understand that verse and its significance because I'm looking at all these different parts and and, uh, I kind of knew what a yoke was, but I wasn't thinking about it from the right angle. I'm thinking, here Jesus is going to put put work on my shoulders, and he does. It's just going to be good work, and, and that's true. But I didn't quite think about what Jesus was talking about right here. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, and it sounded like, it sounds like on the end that we're getting work put on us. But if you've ever seen a yoke of oxen, you know that what Jesus was saying is something very different. In case you don't know what a yoke is this morning, that's perfectly acceptable. We don't normally run oxen teams anymore. But a yoke is this heavy wooden brace that would be placed around the neck and the shoulders of two oxen. All right, it's a long wooden thing. You've probably seen them in old movies, Western movies. If you ever watch when they're hauling wagon trains west, they have the covered wagons and they have the, the oxen out in front. And they have this heavy wooden thing, kind of works like part of a tree system on a, on a carriage, but it, it's designed so that the workload is distributed between both animals fairly evenly, and it's placed at the part of an animal that is the strongest. The cow has really strong front end, strong front legs because they can get themselves up and down with that. And so that weight is set right against what would be our shoulders, right against their chest, so they're able to lean into that and use all their momentum and power to move whatever burden it is that they're being called to move. And Jesus said, look, if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, if you've lost your peace, I have an offer for you. My offer is that you team up with me, that you get in the yoke with me. And what I've wanted to do so often in my life is I've looked for other people to to yoke up with, and maybe you do this as well. Maybe you married an amazing individual, and you said, I want to be a a family with you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you, and so I'm going to yoke up with you, right? And that's exactly, in many ways, what marriage is. But let let me just caution you. If you're trying to get your spouse to carry your emotional burden, sometimes they don't have the strength to do that. If you're trying to get other people to help you pull a burden that you can't carry alone, sometimes they can't help you do that. There are burdens in life that Jesus and Jesus alone can help us carry. Now, guys, the truth of the matter is, is that when you yoke up with Jesus Christ, you are yoking up with an absolutely amazing partner. Jesus Christ was the one who was able to walk through this world by himself. Yes, he was in a relationship with the Father. There's no question about that. But he was able to navigate all the struggles and the sins of this life. He was able to live an absolutely perfect life and to exit this life having never sinned. He was able to carry the entire sin burden of the entire world on his shoulders to the cross and yet did it with grace And with a godly countenance, it's absolutely amazing. Listen, what Jesus is offering us here in Matthew, the 11th chapter, is the opportunity of a lifetime. He's saying to me, Jason, you think you've got it heavy? Why don't we just step into this together? (laughs) Listen, when you yoke up with Jesus, you have a partner that can pull the weight. Now, God puts people in our life to link up with us as well. In fact, that's the purpose of the church. We talked about that briefly last week. 
It says, don't neglect meeting together, but, but gather together and encourage one another. We're supposed to work together as a great big family, as a great big team, but when you're trying to deal with the heavy stuff of life, Jesus Christ is that one who wants to yoke up with you. Notice he says a couple things here. He uses three words. He says, come. Come, all of you who are laden, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he uses another word. He says, take. Both of these words are, are words that we have to respond to. We have to come, as Brad pointed out this morning, so often in the Bible when God says, hey, Here's an opportunity. He doesn't force it on us. He just gives us that opportunity. And so Jesus says, here's an opportunity. Are you going to come? Here's something you can take. Are you going to take that? And then the third thing is, Jesus says this, and learn from me. How many of you, I don't, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, but I'll bet you have. How many of you have ever had the opportunity to learn from somebody who is really good at what they do? Isn't that, the, what you, isn't that who you want to learn from? Yeah, me too. How many of you get online sometimes, you're trying to fix something? Like say you're trying to fix the car. How many of you get online, pop up a YouTube video, kind of work through your way through that, find somebody that you can tell they know what they're doing and then listen to that video? Why do we do that? Because that's the fastest way to kind of cut that learning curve, right? To go to the person who is the best at it. And Jesus said, if you're feeling weary, if you're feeling like life has got you down, if you are broken and you don't have peace, I have three words for you. Come to me. Take up the yoke. Put yourself in a relationship to pull together with me and learn from me. I'm going to teach you how to make this happen. Guys, what a beautiful opportunity. I think we all know how those workers on the wall felt. If you're a parent, I can guarantee you that you have dealt with weariness. If you're a grandparent, you may have well dealt with weariness where you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm so tired of this. I wish it was going differently. I wish there was more, a better answer. I wish I knew what to do. You know, sometimes you're a, a child that feels the same way towards your folks. I, I was... My, both of my folks died after fairly lengthy illnesses. My mother's not as long as my father's. And sometimes you walk away from that, and it's just a weariness. So it's a heaviness on your shoulders. There's no getting better. There's no fixing this, and it hurts. We don't have God to pull or Jesus to pull with, guys. Sometimes Satan can accomplish what he wants. See, Satan did not want them to rebuild that wall because when they rebuilt that wall, they reestablished their statehood. When they reestablished their place as a people, then they would once again give fuel to a prophecy that Satan knew God had given to Abraham generations before and David generations before, that from his family there would come somebody that was going to change the world and was going to make things different. Satan did not want that to happen, so he said, I'm going to wear them out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weary. I'm going I'm to chip them down. I'm going to make them where they're dragging in this job. And then they'll quit, and then I'll win. If you're fighting for your family this morning, quit is a word that cannot be a part of our dictionary. If you're fighting for your own spiritual walk, we can't quit. We have to do as in words of Winston Churchill. I love that speech. You guys know that. Never give up. And you might say, well, it's bigger than me, Jason. I can't handle it. You're right. It will be. And you're not supposed to handle it. Remember Matthew 11. You've got a teammate. You've got a partner. 
Have you come? Have you taken up the yoke with him? And are you learning? Because he's ready to welcome you. He's ready to pull with you. And he's ready to teach you. Second thing that those people had trouble with, of course, as you remember, it says there's way too much to do. There's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. I don't even know where to start. There was, there was frustration in their voices. We're, we're trying to rebuild a wall, but right now it looks like a trash heap. In generations, 70 years' time, grass had no doubt taken over it, and the soil had kind of built in around it. The stones weren't loose. Everything was work. There's so much to do. There's too much to do. Sometimes we can feel like that as well as parents. I know I, I, know I should be studying with my kids I know I should be having that prayer and that devotional walk with my kids, but there's just so much to do, Jason. If you feel like that that's the story of where you are right now, moms and dads, let me just tell you that I'm with you there. Yes, I'm a preacher. Yes, Michelle and I love our kids as much as anything in the world, but it is a struggle sometimes for us to get those spiritual things fit in. We're busy people. Maybe that's why it's such a struggle. Because it's so important. They were going to have to fight through the rubble in order to rebuild the wall. And we're going to have to fight through the rubble that's a part of our life to make sure that our children have that firm foundation. Jesus told that story. I'm just going to briefly talk about it today because we don't have time. But Jesus tells a beautiful parable of two guys that sought out to build a home. One of them Builds his house on the, on the sand. And, and, and that's obviously a great place to build sa- a house, right? It's easy to dig there. It goes up quickly. It's desirable real estate. While the other guy looks at the same options. And he says, no, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go up on the side of this hill. I'm going to find a rock. And I'm going to dig down until I get to that rock. And I'm going to build my house off of this firm foundation. The reason why these two men chose these two different building platforms is that their, well, their perspective was set in two different places. The first builder who built on sand, his perspective was an immediate perspective. He's like, I want to get a house. I need a house. Let's get it done quickly, right, fast. But the second guy looks at it and he says, I want a house that's going to last. I want something that's going to be secure for a long time. So I'm going to dig down. I'm going to put it on some rock so that it's here forever. Moms and dads, we, as Americans, we have this, <laughs> we have this decision to make every day. Do we want it fast or do we want it to last and as Americans, we, we tend to be really pulled towards fast. We want things that happen quickly, and we're kind of impatient. The other day, I'm sitting in line at a fast food restaurant, right? And it took like seven to ten minutes for my food to come out. Guess what? You guys know me. I admit to you I'm impatient. Yeah, I was a little, I was a little sideways. And I'm thinking in my mind, I thought this was fast food, you know? I didn't say it out loud. All right, you guys would be proud of me. But I was thinking it. All right, I thought this was fast food. We're going to like, cook a whole steak on this time, right? Um, We like things that are fast, but spiritual lives, guys, building in our kids' character, developing spiritual habits with them, we're going to talk about that in a while, that doesn't happen quickly. Yeah, there's a lot to do. But what is the foundation of our lives? What's the foundation of our kids' lives? There's two quick things that I think... We've got to do if we want to make this work. And there's really so much we could talk about. We're just taking one Sunday 
to talk about home, and we'll revisit these subjects later on in the year. First thing is that we've got to make room. I, I love a story of, of a guy by the name of Obed-Edom. You may not know that story, but Obed-Edom is a guy that... Uh, it was first mentioned in the Bible after the death of Uzzah. Uzzah was a guy that was following the, the Ark of the Covenant back from Philistine captured territory into the land of Israel. And David had prepared a, 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 a yoke of oxen and a cart, and they set this ark, this box that represented the, the, the presence of God onto this cart, and they were hauling it back into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And everything looked great. The problem was is that they weren't, they weren't doing God things God ways, right? So God had prescribed to Moses that when you build this box, I want you to put some gold rings on the side of it, and there's going to be some long poles that are run into this, and I want you to get uh, eight guys, and they're going to pick this box up, and they're going to rest this on their shoulders, and they're going to carry this with poles. But I know David was probably like the rest of us, and David's like, that's a long way to hike from clear over there in Philistine country, clear to Jerusalem, what we need to do is modernize the approach. We need to get a wagon. We need to put the ark on the wagon, and then no one will have to carry it, and it just seems like it'll work better anyway. It worked better until they came to Louisiana. When they got to Louisiana, they got on the road there, and there was a great big pothole right there on the edge of... I'm sorry. Um, but... Uh, they, they, they hit that pothole, and the cart went wonk, wonk, whatever that is, kind of the wonky sort of thing. And the Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful golden box with two golden cherubim that represented the presence of God with us here in this earth, right? This golden box that means is a cultural identifying piece to the Israelites begins to slide off the side of this trailer. This is disaster. And so Uzzah, being a really good guy, just reaches out and he shoves it back onto the trailer like any good guy would, except that God said no one touches the Ark of the Covenant because I am a holy God and this is to be a set-apart and holy box. God was making a really powerful point that you're going to have to do something about your sin before you can come and be in a relationship with me. That's the beauty of the church. It's the beauty of what Jesus offered us on the cross. It's the beauty of baptism that we're washed clean so the Spirit of God can indwell us. So we are worthy, not because of what we have done, but because of what we've been given. But Uzzah reaches out and touches this, and it says in the Bible, immediately he falls dead. Now David is mad. He said, God, I can't believe you killed this guy. He was just trying to keep the box on the ark. And God said, I said, don't touch my box. Now some of us are looking at that and we're saying, Matt is a really grouchy God. It doesn't matter what you think. He's God. He's holy. He said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. So they're looking around. Here they are on the edge of Philistine country. What are we going to do with this thing? David said, that's it. I ain't bringing it back. He was mad, right? <laughs> he stomps back over into Jerusalem, and he's going to cool off, and he's going to sort this out. And incidentally, he's going to come back, and he's going to get it with poles like God said to do in the first place. It's going to go without any incident. Sometimes just because it doesn't make sense to us doesn't mean it doesn't need to be done that way. But where are we going to park this thing? You can't just leave it out in the middle of this, feet, of this road. And so they find a guy by the name of Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom said... Bring the box, I'll put it in my house. Bring the Ark of the Covenant and I'll house it in my house. Now you think about this. How many of you as parents would bring the golden box representative of God's presence with his people 
into your home when a guy out on the road touched it and died? How many of you are just going to bring this box right up in the house? Not a one of us. Most of them are going to be like, hey, that's way too dangerous. That's like nuclear bomb right there. We're not just going to haul a nuclear bomb into the living room and sit around and have tea. No. And they didn't have big houses in those days, guys. I'm just guessing that this Ark of the Covenant is there in the corner of the house. They're living and working around it. I'm guessing that they didn't touch it, right? And the beautiful part of the story, I don't have time to develop it this morning, and I hate that, but the beautiful part of Obed-Edom's story is, is that he welcomes it in, and it stays there for three months in his home, and God blesses him. And from what we know, he didn't have any children or relatives die. And then David finally comes to his senses and says, okay, it's time for me to go back and get this. And he gets the poles, he gets the, he gets the Levites. They, they uh, come prepared and equipped to lead it back to Jerusalem. And then Obed-Edom decides he's going to do something. Obed-Edom decides he's going to come with that ark. Now, you should know something about Obed-Edom that's kind of interesting to me. It tells us where he's from. Where he's from is not Israeli Jewish territory. Where he's from is Philistia. But Obed-Edom makes room for a holy God in his home. And he recognizes that when he made room for a holy God, that means there's just certain things that we're not going to do. There's certain things you're not going to touch in that house. There's a certain amount of discipline that's just absolutely implicit because we've got the box that represents God's covenant with his people, the Ark of the Covenant in the corner of our house right here. We are going to respect God, and we are going to be different. I'm just guessing that things, probably a whole lot of people didn't come over to Obedium's house and say, hey, let's see the box. There was a set-apartness, a holiness about what he was doing, and God saw that, and he blessed it. But when that, when that Ark of the Covenant left his home, Odom Edom left his home with it. The second thing that he did that was so amazing is he pursued an abiding relationship with God. He said, you know what? This has been a part of my life for three months. Having this relationship is so important to me. I'm going to move with it. Obed-Edom becomes one of the caretakers of the ark in Jerusalem. This time, he's a guard at the door. His sons would become the keepers of the storehouse, trusted individuals used by God. It tells us that in the end, he was in Chronicles, that he was blessed. 68 of his offspring, all of them served the Lord. You're going to have to fill in a lot of those blanks today, but there's a lot of things that, that we are called to do right there. In order to walk or abide daily in Christ, we've got to do three things really quickly. We've got to walk by faith. Obed-Edom did that. He said, you need a place to put it? Here's my house. Secondly, we got to spend some focused time. Moms and dads, I, I just want to really encourage you that even if it's hard and even if it seems like there's no time for it, make sure that you have a spiritual relationship with your kids. Make sure that the Bible's open to them. If they're young and age-appropriate, storybook is wonderful. You know, it kind of takes the Bible stories and it fuels their imagination. As they grow older, take them into the real New Testament portions, Mark maybe, and just as a family, read through the story of Mark and ask questions together and seek answers together. It's so valuable. Pray with your children. This isn't a super intense time commitment, but it will make a huge difference in how things work out. The third thing is to engage in intentional actions which is kind of what I just described. 
Lastly, as we know, the children of Israel, they were living under attack, and we too are living, living under attack. The enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right on them, and we'll kill them, and we'll put an end to their work. You hear people say this all the time, and I'm not trying to be cliche this morning, but the family is under attack in the Western world. There's any number of things that we could talk about today if we had the time. There's any number of things that, <laughs> that could be challenging. One of the biggest things is, is just a lot of the content that comes into our homes through our kids' phones, through their tablets, through the television. Years ago, I, I heard a guy tell a story, and I, I just never forgot it. He had a little, his grandbaby was over for dinner, mom was over, they were doing family dinner together, you know. Mom wanted the little guy to eat some green beans, and, and just like it is when there's kids are little, they don't like to eat their vegetables, you know, and so she gave him some green beans, and he's picking at them, and he's picking at them, and his mom's putting more and more pressure, and he took it for about as long as he could, and then he tells his mom, he says, look, mom, don't foul up a good friendship. And they all laughed and chuckled, and he said, I thought back, where did he come up with that? About a week later, he's watching TV, and in the middle of one of the TV commercials, guess what the person says? Don't mess up a good friendship, right? This little guy, even though he doesn't really know what they're trying to sell or what they're trying to vend, the little four-year-old kid is absorbing ideas into his mind. And guys, we're being very well marketed today by people that understand how we think and what motivates us. And if as adults, they're getting us, imagine what they're doing to our kids I'm talking to you today as a concerned father, and I'm going to take a couple more minutes. I don't mean to hold any of you guys up. But moms and dads, we've got to be savvy. I was sitting at the kitchen table with our girls the other night. We were watching TikTok videos. They love these things. I don't, but I want to know what's going on. So we're watching TikTok videos, and whatever, one of them comes up, and there's this really catchy little line in this song. And I, I realized that I'd been hearing my girls sing this line over and over again for the last week in my house. It's just a catchy little thing. And then I realized, oh, this is where it came from, TikTok, right? <laughs> Great. All right. So I, I'm, I, I'm looking at that. I'm like, what, what song is that from? Because as we watched several people try to do it, some of them did it really well and some of them did it really horrible. That's the whole TikTok thing if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's one of those social media platforms. Anyway, as we're watching that, I'm thinking, man, what song is that? So... I start looking it up. What song is the TikTok song that everyone's doing? I start Googling. Finally, I trace it back. I'm not going to tell you the, the person who did the song. I'm just going to tell you that it is an absolutely awful, awful song with an absolutely amazing bridge. If you're a songwriter, you know that a great song has a hook. This song has a beautiful hook. And the lyrics, well, I started reading the lyrics to my kids poetically. And they said, Dad, stop. Dad, Stop, stop, right? Don't tell them I'm top preaching about them this morning, right? They didn't want to hear it anymore because it was so inappropriate. But when it's packaged up in this cute little song with this fancy little melody that someone does absolutely brilliantly, we're, we're amazed with the talent and we forget that the message is corrupting our soul. And guys, I know you might think I'm an overreactive preacher. You can label me like that if you want to, but I have a couple kids at my house that I watch and I know they're affected by the things that they take in. And if, as older people, especially as grandmas and grandpas, you guys know that it makes a difference. We're living under attack. And we've got to have homes that are ready to deal with that.
Let me just say this. I think one of the greatest things that we can have as Christian families is a home that's a safe harbor. Our kids go out to school, they go out to work, they go out to life, whatever it is, and it's rough out there. We know that. Our homes should be a place of safety and security. If there's anything that we're doing that marginalizes that, dads, if our anger and our temper is marginalizing the safety of our home, if our tongue is marginalizing the safety of our home, we've got to deal with that. Moms, if, if, if the same thing for us, if our, if our actions, if our requests, if our attitudes are endangering that safe place, we need to do something about it because our kids desperately need some place they can come that they know it's spiritually and emotionally safe here. There's four things, five things we're closing with this today that every Christian home should have because they're the marks of a Christian. Number one, Christian homes should have joy as a characteristic there should be joy in that house. I'm not talking about happiness because there's a big difference between happiness and joy. I'm talking about the opposite of the weariness that we experienced in the first part of the sermon. That the, the people, when we come together, that there's, that there's joy there. Yes, there's going to be happiness and sometimes there's going to be tears, but there's a certain comfort. This is a good place to be. Secondly, there needs to be peacefulness and orderliness. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Sometimes there's certain things that maybe just necessarily wrong, but they just stir everything up. Maybe the house is an absolute mess, and, and sometimes those things just cause issues in a home. We should have homes that are peaceful and orderly. I'm not talking about dusting the baseboards. You can raise kids very successfully with dusted or non-dusted baseboards. Now, my mom, she would have told you no, right? The baseboards must be dusted. Um, but, uh, but the truth is, I'm not talking about little things, guys. I'm talking about the big things in life. When the kids come home, is this a place that's, that's peaceful and in order? A Christ-centered home should be marked with grace. Moms and dads, your kids are going to blow it, going to make some terrible mistakes, they're going to embarrass you. They're going to embarrass themselves. And the world out there is going to post it on social media and mock them. What are you going to do? I hope it's not that. Students, you guys are in here this morning. Some of you are left. Your moms and dads are not perfect. Your moms and dads did not go through a training program and already raised 10 kids. No, they're, they're human too. They're going to make some mistakes. They're going to have those days where they disrupt the peace and happiness of home because their peace and happiness has been disrupted. And you've got to learn to give grace too. The home is a place where we learn to be gracious to one another. A Christian home is a place of service. It's not just about parents taking care of the kids, no. Kids, we, we have a responsibility to take care of our moms and dads too. Do things for them, care for them, provide for them. And number five, and we're closing with this, Christ-centered home is a place where spiritual disciplines are practiced. Where maybe we're not perfect. And I use that word practice very deliberately. Because my kids have seen me get angry before. I'm not proud of that, but they've seen me get angry. My kids have heard me say stupid things before. Because I'm human. 
My kids have seen me act in ways that I'm not proud of and wouldn't want anyone else to, but they live there. They're around me 24-7. My kids have seen me sucked in talking about somebody in a way that, that probably wasn't uplifting and probably didn't need to be mentioned in front of them. And I've had to go back and apologize and say, I know you can't get it out of your mind, but know this, I was wrong for saying what I said. I've blown it in every way. And then you ask my girls, they'll tell you, dad's a mess, all right? But I'm struggling to become better. And I hope that all of us are. I hope our kids can see that spiritual battle happen within us. I want to read the rest of this passage as we close. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we can't rebuild the wall. And our enemies have said, before they know it or see us, we're going to move right in among them and we'll kill them and put an end to this work. Then the Jews who lived near came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. It was outside pressure too. We didn't even have time to talk about that today. Everyone always has an idea of what you should do, right? Listen to what Nehemiah did. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And after I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and who is awesome And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Wherever you hear the sound of a trumpet, join us there. And our God will fight for us. I love this. Nehemiah said, you know what we're going to do? They want to bluster us. We're all tired and weary. This is what we're going to do. We'll get families together. I'm going to get a family, I'm going to plant a family, a dad and his sons. I'm going to put them right in the slot because I know that they're they're going to stand their ground because they're standing their ground for their brother and their father and their aunts and their uncles. And when there's a need, we're going to blow a trumpet. If they attack on the east side of the city, you blow a trumpet, we're coming over to help you on the east side of the city. But I love what Nehemiah finished this by saying, and the Lord will fight with us. Guys, we're not in this battle by ourselves. You're weary if you're burdened come to me take my yoke upon you and learn moms and dads <laughs> we have a pulling partner in this all right even if you're not married here today even if you're completely single you're still pulling your way through life you have your struggles you have your challenges we're not in this battle alone we have a god that's pulling with us Let's take every advantage of that. Let's stand our ground. And let's build the wall in a place and a time that God has called us to build. And I'm confident of this. (laughs) He's going to work everything else out. Nehemiah and his crew, they built that wall in record time. They hung the gates in a time that no one thought possible because they did exactly what we read about today. We look around the world and we say, Jason, the battle's too big. The mess is too great. Yeah, it's big. It's too big for us. It's never too big for him. Let's put our faith in him and let's do what God has called us to do. Let's stand together. Let's let's worship.